Oh, my God. 
Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Friday, Erev Shabbos. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Shadish 
רצון מלפניך השם, אלוקיי ואלוקי אבותיי, שתשרש חינתך בבית הזה, ותסייע לחתן, לחתן ולכלה, לבנות בית בששון. לחיות באהבה, זכה אותם לשמוח, לשמוח אחד בשני, זכה אותם בבנים
Yismach Melech 
J.M. in the A.M. Good morning, all. Welcome to a Friday. It's Erev Shabbos on this uh, Friday, April the 13th, day 28 in the month of E.R., the year 5778. It's Erev, Erev Rosh Chodesh, meaning Saturday night, tomorrow night, we begin saying Yalaviyavo for a two-day Rosh Chodesh E.R. Again, we'll bench Rosh Chodesh tomorrow, Rosh Chodesh E.R. Sunday and Monday, it's Erev Shabbos Parsha Shmini. In Israel, it's Erev Shabbos Parsha's Tazria. Tazria Matzorah, if I'm not mistaken, right? I think it's a double Parsha uh, in Israel. 
Candle lighting at uh, 7.13 here in New York. 7.13 official candle lighting time in New York. As that time continues to get later and later. 59 degrees, partly, yeah, 59. Wow, partly cloudy, a high 78 today. Nice, all right. Partly cloudy tonight, low 60. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, a high 73. Let's hear it for a nice-looking Shabbos. Yerushalayim at 74. We're at 59 here in New York City as we say good morning at JM in the AM. Lots of great music this morning on this Friday, Erev Shabbos. That was Avram Fried's Bring the House Down. Yismach Melech, Shlomo Katz. Bowie Kala for Micha Gammerman. Ohad had Birchas Habanim and Birchas Chupa. Yaakov Shweki's Birchas Habayis. Yerd Leif Tahar with their uh, benching Rosh Chodesh. Misha Asa, words from Rosh Chodesh benching with Sandy Shmueli. And of course, Regesh Modani opening things up. And we say good morning. 16 minutes before 7 o'clock. Malcolm Honeline, one hour from now. He's in Eastern Europe. He joins us coming up at 7.40 Eastern time this morning. Or by Yudin at 8.15 with the Torah portion of the week. He'll do the Torah portion for Chutzlaretz, for outside of Israel. Parsha Shmini. And um, plenty, uh, plenty of course, between now and 9 a.m. as uh, we continue here on a uh, Friday morning, Erev Shabbos at JM in the a.m. More coming up. Um, more coming up. This one comes from... Had to check myself. There we go. Eitan Freilich Mizrach Shemesh. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos, JM in the AM.
J.M. the A.M. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. Thanks for joining us, everybody, as we get closer and closer to a Rosh Chodesh ER. On Wednesday, it's Yom HaZikaron, Israel Memorial Day. On Thursday, we celebrate Yom HaTzma'ut, Israel Independence Day. This year on the 4th of ER is the celebration. Kolachai had Bikarov. You heard Micha Mocha done by Shalshala, Seitan Freilich, Mimizrach Shemesh here at J.M. in the A.M. I thank all of you who are tuned in around the world. Our Erev Shabbos Music mix will go all the way until 7.13, candle lighting time in the New York area. Make sure to be tuned in all through the day. Uh, that'll begin right after Naomi Nachman and The Table for Two, which airs at uh, 9 a.m. Uh, all of it, the Arab Shabbos Music Mix, presented by our friends at Kedem, and we thank them. Make sure you have plenty of Kedem wine on your table this Shabbos and every Shabbos. Shlissel Chala Shabbos. Yeah, this is the Shabbos after Pesach. So I guess uh, many would say it's a key Shabbos coming up. Candle lighting 713. Rosh Chodesh ER will be Sunday and Monday. And um, we'll start saying Yalaviyavo tomorrow night. If you have a comment, you can post it on the NSN Nachum Siegel Network app. Feel free to do so. We love when you do so. And if you want to sponsor part or all of a JMN broadcast, upcoming Yom HaZikaron or Yom HaTzmod or whatever the case may be, go to fjbunity.org Foundation of a Jewish Broadcasting fjbunity.org It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com on the NachumSiegel Network and of course on the beloved NSN app. It's on the background on this Friday era of Shabbos. Plenty coming up in just a minute as we get to our newscast at the top of the hour. Malcolm Honline is in Eastern Europe. He is scheduled to join us 7.40 Eastern Time here at JM in the AM. Rabbi Yudin, of course, at 8.15 with Parsha Shmini, which is what we read outside of Israel this week. Well, they're talking about uh, Galei Tzal's presentation of Yom HaZikaron coming up this Tuesday night and Wednesday on Israeli radio. We'll have an appropriate Yom HaZikaron special, of course, 6 till 9, Wednesday morning, right here at the Nahum Siegel Network, your JM and the AM broadcast. Galei Tzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Friday is next. Boker Tov from JM and the AM. רוסיה טוענת יש בעדינו הוכחות חותכות לכך שהמתקפה הקימית בסוריה הייתה מבוימת. 
כתבנו נתן אלדרשן. שר החוץ של רוסיה סרגי לברוב טען היום כי בידי הקרמלין מידע חד משמעי לפיו ארגון ביון זר סייע לביים את המתקפה הקימית שהתרחשה בעיר דומא סמוך לדמשק בשבוע שעבר. מספר מדינות מערביות הודיעו בימים האחרונים כי קיימות בידיהן הוכחות לשימוש בכלור וכן בגז עצבים בלתי מזוהה. אלפי פלסטינים מוחים כעת מול הגדר בגבול רצועת עזה, צה"ל מגיב בירי. מנהלת השידור, כתבתנו פיי גוטמן. המפגינים בחמשת המוקדים בעזה מבעירים צמיגים ודגלים ומשליכים בקבוקי תבערה ואבנים לכיוון החיילים. כוח צה"ל משתמש נגדם באמצעים לפיזור הפגנות ואף בעירי במספר מקרים, אך עד כה לא דווח על אירועים חריגים. מספר המפגינים נכון לעכשיו נמוך משמעותית מבשבועות הקודמים. וחבר הכנסת יאיר לפיד שהגיע לאזור הגבול אמר לכתבנו רמי שני על הקהילה הבינלאומית להבין שזו לא הפגנה תמימה. חמאס מצעיד אזרחים אל הגדר. העולם צריך לדעת שלא מדובר חיה אזרחית, אלא בארגון טרור נפשע שמשתמש בנשים ובילדים כמגן אנושי. צה"ל פועל מולו בנחרצות, בנחישות ועל פי החוק הבינלאומי, וחיילי צה"ל ומפקדיו צריכים לדעת שיש להם גיבוי מלא מאיתנו, ויש לנו אמון מלא בהם ובדרך הפעולה שלהם. אוגנדה הודיעה, נשקול בחיוב קליטת כ-500 מהגרים מישראל, כתבנו נתנאל דרשן. במסיבת עיתונאים שנערכה היום אישר לראשונה שר בממשלת אוגנדה כי מתקיימים מגעים עם ישראל בנוגע לקליטת מהגרים וכי נשקלת בחיוב קבלת 500 אריתראים וסודנים לבקשת ישראל וארגוני פליטים נוספים, לשון הודעת השר. עד כה הכחישו באוגנדה כי קיים הסכם עם ישראל והבהירו כי אין הבנות רשמיות או בלתי רשמיות. נשיא הרשות הפלסטינית אבו מאזן גינה את הצתת המסגד הבוקר בעיירה אקרא בשבשומרון ואת ריסוס כתובות תג המחיר על קירותיו. הודעה שפרסם כתב אבו מאזן, זו לא הפעם הראשונה שבה מתנחלים מעלים באש מסגדים או כנסיות באדמות הפלסטיניות הכבושות. הפשעים הללו מתרחשים תחת עיני כוחות הכיבוש, לשון דברי אבו מאזן. כדורגל ארסנל תפגוש את אתלטיקו מדריד בחצי גמר הליגה האירופית. בעוד זמן קצר, גלת חצי הגמר בליגת האלופות. כתבנו אופיר יונתן. מואנס דבור, שחקן נבחרת ישראל וקבוצתו זלצבורג, יפגשו את מרסיי הצרפתית. במשחק נוסף התמודדו מועדוני הפאר ארסנל ואתלטיקו מדריד. המשחקים ישוחקו בשיטת בית וחוץ, כשהמשחק הראשון יתקיים בעוד כשבועיים. בשעה הקרובה יוגרלו גם משחקי חצי גמר ליגת האלופות, ליברפול, ביירן מינכן ורומא. כבר כוססים ציפורניים. עוד מעט זה קורה. מזג האוויר חם מהרגיל לעונה לפחות עד לאמצע השבוע הבא. אלה החדשות שעורך מירון ששון, בעצבת יתיאל דינר ויאיר בסט.
Jam and the AM off of the album entitled The Art of the Cantor. That is Chazen Etanel Hirschdick here at Jam and the AM, and that's called Vishamru. Before that, you heard the Kimalachav and Lachav, both by Mordechai Shapiro, to open up the 7 o'clock hour. Jam and the AM at 19 minutes after 7. Malcolm Holmline joins us from Eastern Europe coming up here at Jam and the AM. We'll have that for you uh, at 7.40 Eastern time this morning. So get ready, y'all. And um, Rabbi Yudin, of course, at 8.15 and plenty more. We wrap up things at 9 o'clock and head straight to our network programming with Naomi Nachman and Table for Two. And then, of course, our Erev Shabbos music mix brought to you by the wonderful people at Kedem. 59 degrees, partly cloudy, a high temperature of 78. Tonight going down to 60 only, and mostly sunny tomorrow. Shabbos looks like 73 degrees. We will take that. That's for sure. Amram Adar next at JM in the AM.
J.M. in the A.M. Yisrael Werdiger, that's a song called Yom Zeh here at J.M. in the A.M. Uh, before that one, you heard the, um, oh, where are we? There we go. Uh, the Kinderlach selection, Anabakoach. David Gabe Zara, Roktim Halila was done by Amram Adar. J.M. in the A.M., good morning. Welcome to a Friday, everybody. Erev Shabbos Parsha Shmini. In Israel, it's Erev Shabbos Parsha's Tazria. I think it's a double Parsha in Israel, if I'm not mistaken. Candle lighting here in New York, 7.13, 7.13. Your candle lighting time. Well, Ben Shoshchodesh ER, Shoshchodesh ER starts tomorrow night. That's when we begin to say Yalav Yovo. It is a two-day Shoshchodesh ER, Sunday and Monday. 59 degrees, partly cloudy, a high 78. Now we're talking. Now we are talking. <laughs> 78 today, 73 tomorrow. No complaints. Simple as that. Malcolm Honline is in Eastern Europe. He'll join us live via telephone about, oh, I would say about five minutes from now uh, to start the weekly update, get on track with current events and what's going on. I want to thank those who uh, commented regarding our Yom HaShoah program yesterday. I thought it was a... um, an appropriate way to remember the six million, and to talk talk about the uh, the Holocaust from a 2018 perspective, and I am glad that so many of our listeners felt the same way. A lot of people commented about the effectiveness of yesterday's Yom HaShoah program, and I greatly appreciate that. I remind everybody that Yom Hazikaron Israel Memorial Day is coming Wednesday. I remind everyone that on Thursday, Israel 70. That's right, we are six days away from the Israel 70 celebration. Yom Ha'atzmaut being observed this coming Thursday. We are getting ready with a big special, an expanded large special here at JM in the AM and the Nahum Siegel Network. Uh, so get ready. It should be an amazing day. Wishing everybody, uh, I wish everybody will in some way acknowledge the day, understand the importance of the day, and, and certainly celebrate if that's, your, if that's your thing. But at the minimum, to acknowledge the great miracle of uh, 1948, Israel's Independence Day, 70 years later, this coming Thursday here at JM and the AM. And boy, are we looking forward to it. Um, all right, so the weekly update is coming up. Plenty more. Keep it right here on a Friday morning Erev Shabbos at JM in the AM.
J.M. and the A.M. A good Shabbos selection done by the Edidim Choir off of Shirei Pinchas, volume number three, here on a Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. It's Erev Shabbos, Parsha Shmini, outside of Israel. In Israel, it's uh, Parsha Tazria. Candle lighting time at 7.13. Yeah, I do believe it's a double Parsha in Israel. Uh, candle lighting 7.13 here in the New York area. We'll bench Rosh Chodesh tomorrow night, Rosh Chodesh ER, Sunday and Monday, which means uh, Saturday night we'll start saying Yalavayavo. Big thank you to our friends at JewishWorldReview.com who continue to recommend us to their hundreds of thousands of readers. For those who need uh, good audio accompaniment, uh, if you want to print out thousands of articles before Shabbos, and it's almost not an exaggeration, go to JewishWorldReview.com, check out what's happening in Israel and the Jewish world. Thank you to OnlySimchas.com. OnlySimchas.com has an amazing news feed, not just Smachot, which is great news in and of itself, but wonderful news stories from around the Jewish world, including a whole bunch of stuff that we cover on a regular basis. Check out OnlySimchas.com. Get into the habit of doing that every single day. And a reminder, this coming Wednesday, Yom HaZikaron, Israel Memorial Day, this coming Thursday, Yom HaTzmo'ot, as we celebrate Israel 70 with a unique Yom HaTzmo'ot special here on JM in the AM. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here on uh, Friday mornings on JM in the AM. Today, um, Malcolm Honline, actually for him, it's this afternoon, is in Krakow, Poland, and that is uh, from where he will conduct this conversation on a Friday morning Erev Shabbos. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Well, it's great to be back with you after a short uh, hiatus. I spent a wonderful Pesach majestic retreat in Henderson, Nevada, where an, quite a number of JM and AM listeners Woo! were present, so I send out a greeting to all of them. Nice. And uh, came almost immediately then here to Poland for the March of the Living, which took place yesterday with 15,000 participants. We had a whole delegation of U.N. ambassadors, about 20 of them are here, and 20 more are going to join them in Israel for the Israel 70th. Uh, the president of Poland and the president of Israel were here, and the heads of all the services, the chief of staff of the IDF, the head of the uh, Shin Bet, the Mossad, the police, they all came. It was quite a remarkable gathering and event, and of course, overlaid with the tension that currently exists over the proposed legislation, or the legislation that was adopted uh, by the Polish government about uh, invoking Polish guilt in the Holocaust. Which I'll ask you about in a moment. You know, Malcolm, you're doing this a long time, and I'm referring to March of the Living, and, and most listeners, I think, 
at this point are familiar with the program, uh, that it's dominated by young people, uh, plus Jewish leadership, as you indicated, and that it starts in Eastern Europe, ends up in Israel. Yom Atzmut is coming Thursday, of course. Uh, we know the bridge between Yom HaShoah and Yom Atzmut, how critical a time it is in our calendar. Um, any major differences, and I know I didn't give you a chance really to think about this, but I'm so curious. As the number of survivors dwindles, although I did hear this week Israeli radio reported it's still 200,000 in the state of Israel, but as that number gets lower and now that we're in 2018 and you think back to the early days of March of the Living, I would assume there were always Israeli government officials there. Any major differences between how it's done now and how it was done then? Well, it's much larger. When it started 30 years ago, it was uh, 750 Israelis and 750 Americans. Now you have people from every country on Earth, literally. Uh, you see signs from Mexico, Panama, for, uh, a delegation from Japan, even Sugihara's uh, relatives came, the man who helped save many Jewish lives. Uh, the, the broad spectrum of people, and you see the presence of many adults, about 4,000 adults who came this year as well, uh, and, and uh, also the participation of many non-Jews from around the world. Uh, and, and you're right, the, the number of survivors is dwindling, and there, of course, those who come are elderly, but their message remains so strong. They have such strength, such resilience. How they, uh, and when you hear what they went through, and you think that they could come back to this terrible place, only to help educate, to inform the next generation. And I think the the uh, importance of the march only grows as we see the rise of of anti-Semitism and the, how little the world has learned over the last 70 years when it comes to the, the big lies against Israel, the corporate Jew and the individual Jews. And people cited, you know, the murder of Mrs. Halimi in Paris right. recently as, a, as an example of this. Um, it, it's interesting. I had mentioned to you last year I was in Israel for Yom Atzmut. 69, and I saw the uh, incredible representation from around the world, Jew and non-Jew alike, in the big celebration, similar to what you just described in terms of March of the Living and those in Eastern Europe. I I would assume that a lot of this is the continued identification, pridefully, of both Jew and non-Jew alike with the state of Israel. We always talk about how Israel is attracting, whether it's investment or, or spiritual partners around the world who are just gravitating toward Israel. I would assume this is part of it. Absolutely. The, the, the uh, ubiquitous presence of Israeli flags, I mean, uh, the young people wearing them and carrying them, the link is so clear and the fact that the vast majority will go on to Israel from here. Uh, I even brought, in addition to John Batchelor of uh, ABC and Monica, Fox, Monica Crowley of Fox News and several other people, I guess, from uh, the Arab world, and the the fact that they too begin to relate to it, that the minister, former minister of justice of, of Saudi Arabia, we are honoring on April 25th at the, in, in New York at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, and honoring Muslims who saved Jews during World War II, a story that has not been told. But they begin to identify now, now that they're able to get the information and countries are talking about it. And Ali C. wrote that to the Holocaust Museum, that, and he's the head of the Muslim World League now, that to be a Holocaust denier is anti-Islam, that the Muslim world has to face up to what happened there and to learn about it. And the, 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 I mean, it's a radical change in many regards, but as people confront the growing divisiveness and partisanship and the extremism that we see, even in our own country, 
uh, the lessons of the past become all the more important. Some of the statements that you just indicated they're making from the Arab world, uh, they would have they would have had fear of. Frankly, you know, of of, of uh, they would they would have feared for their own lives in the past if they would have made statements like that. It's incredible how different it is and how they feel that the atmosphere is such that they can go ahead and say those things publicly. The, the King of Morocco was the first to do this when he supported the Aladdin Project, which is uh, Holocaust education. And uh, I, I wouldn't say that it's true universally in the Arab world, that, and even those who come out are still subject to attack and criticism for uh, for doing so. But overall, I would say that, the, that there is change, and there is a growing uh, recognition of, of the need to address and to, to not to dismiss what happened. And the... Um, you know, there, it's a gradual change. It's not something that's immediate. And I'm not, you know, the anti-Semitism and the anti-Israel propaganda and much of the Arab world continues in Muslim world. But it'll be a gradual process, and we have to try and encourage the positive and address the negative in the equally strong terms. And finally, as you sit in Krakow, and you mentioned it earlier, uh, it seems that there's really no resolution yet regarding this whole Polish Holocaust law situation. Would you say that's accurate? Yes, I would say that's accurate. That uh, I mean, a lot of people grandstanding on this issue, but the fact is that yesterday the Polish president spoke. He gave it very forceful, and he is a very, uh, considered a great friend of the Jewish community here and of Israel. Uh, the president of Israel, though, gave a very forceful address in which he spoke about the culpability of Europeans and, and others, whether in France and uh, Holland, Belgium, other countries, those who were, who were complicit in the murder of Jews, and he said, and Poles too, just they recognized the fact that there were you know, 6,700 uh, Polish people who were recognized as righteous amongst the nations and for their role in having saved Jews more than in any other country. Uh, but more Jews were killed here than in any other country as well. And to, to talk about what happened in Kilchid, what happened in other places where even Jews returning after the war, so you couldn't blame it on the Germans, were subject to killing and and, um, and being chased out and, um, the, and terrible circumstances. So the the this is casting a cloud over everything because the the president when he signed the law referred it right away to the constitutional court and he didn't make comments about the hope that the court would limit it or or address it because he did not support it the 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 problem is now that this would criminalize any reference to Polish complicity uh, it is one thing to say that the camps were not Polish camps but these were Nazi camps. Right. But it's another thing to say that Poles didn't have any play role in it. By the way, does that include non-Polish citizens who would say uh, make statements like that inside Poland? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Uh, so visitors and tour guides. I think you once pointed this out to us, actually, in this whole process, that visitors and tour guides right. would, would be right, would be subject to uh, uh, to have um, uh, violated the law. Um, all right. Uh, we, we will obviously we'll get to Syria, we'll get to Iran, but l- let's start with Gaza because. And I saw that you just posted a. Uh, uh, the Lior Ackerman article from the Jerusalem Post, which is actually entitled The Next Israeli War in Gaza. And you can imagine, you don't have to imagine, you're you're in the category of people who really care about those in the IDF. We know how scary uh, the war of 2014 was. Are we on the verge of war uh, in Gaza? I, I don't know whether we're on the verge of a war. I think we are in a war. Uh, and it's been an ongoing war. It just uh, uh, periodically flares up. But we know that the the ongoing efforts of Hamas, their threats, 
are matched also by the development of weapons, by the fact that they put IEDs on the roads, that they have fired, they've shot rockets, that they are also improving the, the quality, the guidance systems, the, the payloads of the rockets that they have, and building tunnels. I mean, these are all part of an ongoing war which they declare and they say the goal is to take over Israel, to destroy Israel. So the you know the the current stage is just an escalated version of what we what Israel's been going through, and now they found that this is a great PR tool. So they are uh, engaging in this uh, what they call uh, I guess civil disobedience and and protests, but they're not peaceful protests. You can see the pictures of the guys even today trying to dare down the fence. That their goal is to have a mass infiltration, and the fence itself was not built to hold back populations. It's a it's a detection system. System, an early warning system of, of people trying to cross. And you have a long border. You have thousands of Israelis living within a short distance of the border. So Israel's obligated to do what it can and what it must to, to prevent infiltration of the borders. It's a challenge of its sovereignty and its security. The, the Palestinians, the Gazans, uh, have seen how the world reacts and doesn't tell the story that the vast majority of those who have been killed were, were Hamas, identified as Hamas already uh, operatives, that they brought out their people, uh, people who were on their payroll, uh, and forced their families to, that the turnouts were lower than what they expected. But now it's gaining momentum where young people come and then they throw stones and they burn tires and they do other things that uh, and at times uh, have shot. I think that the Hamas now realize that that's not a good thing because it gives uh, Israel greater justification. So they are are limiting it. Today was supposed to be Molotov, Molotov cocktail day, where they were going to throw Molotov cocktails, but instead uh, they, it was called flag burning day, because that of course is much more appealing to the to Western reporters and reporters generally. And so they burnt a number of Israeli flags, but but the violence that's involved and the ultimate uh, escalation of this towards Nakba Day, as they call it, Israel and Independence Day, right. uh, is just portends more danger for the future. So I'm going to uh, adjust my question. We know four years ago Israel felt at the time the only way to quell all of this, certainly the rocket attacks, was with a uh, full-blown ground, ground offensive. Are we heading toward, or are we on the verge of that, a full-blown uh, ground offensive against the enemy. We will if Israel finds itself in a position where it's the only answer. It's not something Israel wants to do. Nobody wants an all-out war right now, I don't think. Uh, but for for right now, for the uh, for the Gazans and the and the Hamas and everybody, they're reaping the benefits of what they consider a PR uh, campaign victory. And for Israel, nothing that it does ever gets a fair shake or or. They're always put on the defensive and being criticized, uh, when in fact the true story doesn't get out about what, what is happening and how they put children and women up front, etc. So um, uh, the, the, a full-scale response will only come if Israel's security uh, is threatened and, and dictates that it's necessary. What do you th- speaking of uh, impressions, uh, world impressions of what's going on there, what do you think of this video that everyone's making a big deal about, uh, Israeli soldiers reveling? in taking out a uh, member of the enemy. Soldiers under tense situations often do things that are not smart or responsible. This obviously was criticized by uh, Israeli officials, and action was taken against some of those involved. But, you know, these are young guys in a very difficult situation. When you face 
and and remember when they burn the tires you virtually can't see anything because this black acrid smoke covers the whole area it's unhealthy amongst other things but it's it's also a grave security threat they know that at any moment people could try to rush the the barrier at the the fences that they have there so you got to put yourself in their circumstances too uh, about what what tensions they're constantly under when your assignment and goal is to eradicate the enemy and you're successful at your assignment or goal i would think human nature might call even under those circumstances might call for i don't know slight joyfulness let's put it that way and i and i well, whenever but israel and israeli soldiers never rejoiced in the killing of the enemy opposite they they we've always regretted it they've always expressed uh, remorse that they're put in the position of having to kill Golda Meir, you know, said that the, the one thing they could never forgive is that, that they taught the kids how to kill, and they made the uh, Israeli soldiers kill. And it goes against the Jewish nature, and it goes against our values. And uh, IDF trains for that. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen how the, they exercise restraint that is superhuman. And it's true here, too. I mean, what country in the world would tolerate this? Can you imagine if they lined up on the Mexican or Canadian borders or if, if uh, in any other place that the people lined up on a border and burned tires and threatened to cross and, and dug tunnels underneath and launched rockets across the border? They wouldn't tolerate it for one day. Yeah, that's for sure. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He's in Krakow, Poland. He spend, spent Yom HaShoah in Eastern Europe. He is heading to Israel for Yom Ha'atzmaut, Israel 70 is this coming Thursday. Let's remember that we have the ability to celebrate. We are not only about mourning and about recognizing sad occasions and sad anniversaries. We as a people do have the ability to celebrate, and this coming Thursday deserves a major celebration. And Malcolm will be there on the spot, and we'll be here trying to give the spirit of the day uh, to our listeners around the world as Israel uh, celebrates its 70th anniversary um, of its day of independence, a very, very significant day, and I hope everybody in their own way, whatever way it is, acknowledges how important a day it really is. All right, Malcolm, let's get to um, uh, the strike on, on Syria. Um, so Israel decided that there was a reason uh, that they they had to, in fact, um, a, a strike in, in uh, Syria. Was it because those Iranian officials, those Iranian representatives were there and they weren't happy with uh, with what they were plotting in Syria for Israel? Well, I don't know that Israel did it. and that Nobody has confirmed that Israel has carried out the attack. <clears throat> so it's somewhat speculative at this point to say that, that, you know, who is responsible. Israel would have had every good reason to carry out the attack. It's a place that was attacked before. We know that it's a staging ground. We know IRGC was there, uh, Iran Revolutionary Guard officials, and that Iran is increasing its presence through the militias and through directly and with Hezbollah. So Israel's preemptive moves are, are to pre- usually to prevent the stockpiling of weapons or the transfer of weapons that would go to Hezbollah. 
and to try, and, and they've repeatedly said that they will not allow Iran to pose a threat by establishing bases and, and operational bases close to its border. Um, Israel Monday appeared to have escalated its shadow war in Syria against Iran with a pre-dawn airstrike against a military base that coordinates Iranian-backed militias, killing four Iranian military advisors. Now, I'm not you know, saying that we should believe everything we read in these major news outlets, but uh, but certainly those who report the news assumed it was Israel. Israeli officials, as you just indicated, declined to confirm or deny that Israel had conducted the airstrike. It followed a vow by President Trump to respond to an apparent chemical weapons attack by the Syrian government near Damascus on Saturday. Uh, I mean, I know that there's <laughs> it's impossible to get into the mind of Assad, but I, I mean... He had to understand, and certainly from past experience, had to know that a chemical attack is going to, you know, increase the ire of leadership and and you know the people around the world. I mean, we see the reaction: the United States, France, England, never a reaction like this to what's going on in Syria until after this chemical weapon attack. Uh, what do you think the circumstances were that uh, encouraged him to go ahead and do this? because he's gotten away with it. He's used chemical weapons many times, uh, often without a response. We've had, we had a response once, and uh, actually it's a provocation. It's a test of the West, and um, uh, you know, whether it was an act of desperation, whether it's a rogue operation, you know, we don't know what the internal machinations, but to use chemical weapons is not so easy. And uh, to people say that you know, some element did it on its own, is probably not so credible. So I think that that they made a decision that they wanted to finish and, and be able to close in on Guta, the rest of the resistance in Guta, as they did before. And uh, I think the president's response, that of the French and British backing him, is very important. You cannot allow, and especially as after visiting Auschwitz yesterday, you can't allow countries and and uh, to engage. And this kind of barbaric behavior, if you don't stop it, it spreads, it will be increased, it will be used against others. It, it is a, uh, I mean, it could be used across Israel's border then. It can be used in other uh, conflicts. And, and if the United Nations and others don't find the res resolve to act decisively, then the United States and Britain and France have an obligation to do so. This can't be allowed to, to, to happen and, and go unresponded. And the President of the United States made that clear, that he's ready to strike if necessary, right? Yes, yeah, so the problem is that, that we, we gave it a lot of advance warning, and um, you know everybody moved their planes, the Syrians moved their planes some to Lebanon, to other bases, to Russian bases, knowing that, that the United States and everybody would be reluctant to hit Russian uh, aircraft, um, but I'm sure that they took that into account in making uh, the announcements that maybe they will target the, the defense ministry, maybe they'll target other facilities and did not want to kill uh, large numbers of people. Uh, they certainly don't want to kill Russian soldiers, they don't want to kill others, but the, um, you know, the weather that all the advanced time and, and uh, warning that they have. Now, the United States has moved and it's not well known, but they've moved tremendous capacity and aircraft carrier destroyers, others off the coast. The, the British have moved uh, planes to, to Cyprus and um, submarines supposedly to the region. France 
uh, will deploy from France, but uh, also uh, we have resources in uh, in Qatar. We have resources in other places in the region uh, that could be used. So you could fire from well off of the shores of of Syria from the aircraft carrier, from from the destroyers, others that are loaded with uh, rockets and do tremendous amount of damage and be outside of the air defense system that the very sophisticated one that Russia has and they have warned that they would be it would be deployed that they would shoot down planes that they would take other kind of measures um the uh did the Iranians get a message from Israel when they struck in Syria did they get a message that uh, that Israeli um uh, aircraft can get in there undetected did they get a message that they're willing to strike anywhere if necessary I think that the message uh, that they've gotten on numerous occasions, including perhaps Israeli flags penetrating Iranian airspace, Israeli planes, that, uh, according to some reports, we don't know, it's not confirmed, but there have been numerous ways that Israel has sent very strong messages about its capabilities and capacities. Uh, and if you notice that there was no uh, uh, retaliatory strike, they keep saying we're going to do it in our time and things, but the fact is that they haven't. And I think the, the, the Israel sent a very strong message uh, with that attack, and also that that despite the presence of the the Russian uh, anti-aircraft systems, the very sophisticated ones and less sophisticated ones, that they are able to penetrate and reach the targets. Is there an American? Is there a U.S. Uh, military presence in Syria? Sure. Does that put we them? Still, remember, he was going to withdraw the troops, uh, President Trump, and then. Decided not to, which is very important. I think abandoning Syria now would be a huge mistake. We should be helping the Kurds. We should be helping others. Um, I think Turkey is still advancing at this time and fighting the Kurds and taking advantage, perhaps, of this lull. But so, that, so, based, uh, so based most on- aircraft, by the way, don't fly now. The whole region—it's a huge area uh, covering Cyprus and other areas, Lebanon, where no commercial aircraft are flying, and warplanes are reluctant to fly because they think that if it's going to be an attack, they could be mistaken and shot down. I'm just wondering if troop presence in Syria might discourage the president of the United States from taking action. Like, I wonder if that's a factor or not. No. The, the, our, our troops are in very specific areas, engaged in a very specific mission against ISIS and other things that, that would not be a risk to our troops. But why why has the uh, Iranian economy collapsed even further this week to the degree that it has? Because of what's happening you know, militarily and, and, and the strikes in Syria, or one has nothing to do with the other? Well, everything is related, but but it's primarily because it was all a fiction. And I, I spoke about this many times on the show, that the, the truth about the economy is not coming out because you see a relatively prosperous situation in Tehran where the IRGC and, and Khamenei, uh, they control 40% of the economy. So the money that came in, $150 billion, did not go to the benefit of the people. The, uh, all of the cash we sent, we know that when you send pallets of cash, it's going to go, that's the, that's the fuel for terrorism. And they gave money to Hezbollah, Hamas, and their expansionist activities, building bases, doing other things, threatening other governments. But nothing benefited the people, and the economy continues to deteriorate. And we have sanctions on Iran, and it shows that sanctions really work, and we should be increasing the sanctions. There are new ones being added periodically, not just against Russia, but against Iran, and, and we have to strengthen them. I think the negotiations with the British and French and others about increased sanctions and how to fix 
um, the uh, JCPOA, the Iran deal. The president made clear that he was prepared to pull out, but what I hear is that they are trying to negotiate the language and stay in at this time. If that can't be done, then, of course, they will pull out, and, and we don't know what the consequences will, will be, what Iran will do, what others will do. But the, the fact is that the sanctions dissuade companies, because if they have to make a choice between dealing with Iran or dealing with the United States, nobody has, has to consider that for more than 10 seconds. And But if it, with the Iranian economy than the way it is, as you just described it, I would think it's much more difficult for them to fund their satellites, you know, the, the different tentacles they have in the Middle East, whether it be Hamas, Hezbollah, etc. I mean, I, I would guess all those efforts suffer when there's no cash available, right? Yes, but they, they still have the oil income, even though, you know, the, the supply is very great right now, but it's beginning to come down. The price of oil has gone up, which means they make more money. Uh, they still have an economy, and they're still making these deals, but as I said, if a long time ago, just because they talk about making a deal doesn't mean that it actually gets consummated and they actually have the money uh, to pay for it. They're trying to buy planes. They're trying to buy uh, from Boeing included. Uh, and hopefully these deals will not be uh, allowed to go through because it only will uh, add to their strength. They use civilian aircraft for military purposes. And everything is, as you said, interrelated. There's no separation. And we have seen the manifestations, the demonstrations that go on inside Iran, but they hardly get reported because people, unemployment, real unemployment, not what they say, but in, in amongst young people, it's about 40%. And that is a sign of a very weak economy. UN reaction to the chemical uh, uh, attack in Syria. Did Nikki Haley and others get what they wanted out of the Security Council? Nobody got what they wanted. The Russians vetoed U.S. efforts. U.S. vetoed Russians' efforts. And in the meantime, the U.N. proved itself uh, um, paralyzed in, in terms of taking some sort of a concrete action. Uh, it's, it's regrettable because uh, this, should, this should be such uh, a consensus issue and that the measures the United States proposed should have been enacted. Did Russia essentially warn the U.S. to stay out of Syria? Well, they have said it in the past, but they, what they essentially said is that we're going to stand by our Syrian ally and we're not going to allow them. And, and he wants to project a message that, Syria, that Russia stands by its friends and that but they the, are a reliable ally. But was the United a, States has improved its image in that regard somewhat. But was there a direct was there a direct or veiled warning by Russia to the U.S. to stay at? Or would you call that? The I, fact, I don't know. Would you call that a veiled warning? That, that, he, that he got out there publicly to mention how he supports the Syrian administration? I don't think it's a warning. To, they, they wouldn't dare warn the U.S. to say that they don't have interests in, in Syria. They have in the past warned about the, uh, you know, the, the actions of the United States and uh, the interests, but Russia's not actually that actively engaged. It is, it is pursuing its interests. One of its interests is to keep Assad in power, and once that is consolidated, which is rapidly happening, I hope that the interests between Russia and Iran, and, and Iran will, for instance, come into clash, more open clash. And uh, that and their interests vis-a-vis -vis Turkey, Assad has attacked Turkey publicly and repeatedly because of its actions in the south, and they wanted, they demanded that they withdraw their troops. So there's a lot of internal divisions that could come up. United States presence in 
footprint there is very limited. Um, do you think there was communication between Russia and Israel? Or again, as long as he's pursuing his own interests, it's irrelevant to him whether Israel decides to strike Syria or not? Uh, no, I understand that there was a talk this week between the Prime Minister and uh, Mr. Putin, and uh, there, I think there are ongoing discussions um, do you, about the situation. Do you, do you think you would call you would categorize the two of them as being on the same page? Well, obviously not, because the United States, Israel did not want to see Assad remain in power, or at least initially. Now, yeah, but nobody I'm, sees an alternative. I, when, when I say uh, on this, when I say on the same page, I mean is Russia willing to ignore? when Israel decides they've got to take out certain Iranian outposts in Syria? Well, the, the, uh, there was differences of opinion over why Israel didn't give advance notice and uh, sufficient notice, but it's risky to do that because then the Russians can give notice to the Syrians. Yeah. Uh, there were other issues that came up, uh, but th- there is ongoing discussion. And obviously, um, Russia did not retaliate and Russia didn't fire uh, any aircraft um, when Israel did what it did, if it did it. <laughs> if it did it. Iranian, <laughs> Iranian official yesterday said that uh, if Israel continues this type of activity, they're willing to, not willing to, they're ready to, and they're threatening to destroy Tel Aviv and Haifa. Tel Aviv and Haifa will be destroyed. Um, I mean, I know that Israel takes Iranian threats very seriously, and you've told us many, many times, make sure to always take your enemy's threats Seriously, but I guess at this time, all Israel is concerned about is if, if, if Iran in Syria or anywhere else sets up outposts that eventually could be dangerous to Israel, they will act to make sure to take them out, right? I mean, that's no different than Israeli policy, I, I would guess, has always been, right? Right, and I think uh, the more boisterous the threats get, sometimes it tells you how limited their capacity is uh, on the part of Iranians. This is part of their tactic. Again, take it seriously because they have tremendous capacity still. But Israel, I think that they will not take Israel's retaliatory capacity in uh, uh, anything less than as a very serious and direct threat to the continued existence of this regime in Iran. So I think Iran has a lot of respect for what Israel could do could potentially do to its interests. Uh, and that's why they act, act through proxies, why they do it through Lebanon, they do it through Syria, they use Hezbollah, they use all sorts of second parties, Hamas, um, to to attack Israel because they don't want to be struck directly. But Israel has sent clearly the message that they would hold them to account for whatever happens. How many times in the last few days have you thought about uh, how just a very, very short time ago Jews were in a situation where they, at knife point and gun point and machine gun point, were taken by the enemy and murdered uh, uh, wantonly. And now, when an entire country threatens the existence of Jewish people, we have the IDF and we have our own intelligence and we have a flourishing Israel, economically and otherwise, to be there on behalf of the Jewish people. I thought about it every step on the walk from in Auschwitz and from Auschwitz to Birkenau. When you think about those who had walked there 75 years ago, the slave labor, the, the torturous existence, the, let alone the, the selection place where people were sent to their deaths, and, and, and as many as 30,000 in a day, but the, the huge numbers, it's, it's astonishing when you think about it, and that 
that today, in the same place, you see young guys in their Israeli military uniforms and police uniforms and others walking proudly, defiantly. You see the people lining the streets, Poles included, cheering and, and, and saluting them. And you see the young people coming from all over the world carrying flags. And many of the people look at them, the Poles, and say, where do you come from? And we thought you were destroyed. And you see the resilience, the rebirth, and the centrality of Israel is so clear. It's so much in your, in, 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 in no one, I don't care where they are on the political spectrum, cannot feel that impact and understand the importance in that context. A short time ago, a soldier would say to a Jew, I'm going to kill you, and would pull a trigger and do so. Now an entire country, representing tens or even hundreds of millions of people, says to the Jews, I'm going to kill you, and Israel basically says, that's what you think and gets out there and does what is necessary to protect Jews all around the world, not just Jews in Israel, but Jews around the world. That's why, by the way, these stupid squabbles about who's lighting torches on Yom Atzmud and who's speaking when. I mean, you know, at some point, I wish I wish Jewish leadership and Israeli leadership would just sit back and, and enjoy the attitude that you just described, and thank God that we're in the position that we are in, no matter who's giving speeches, and no matter who's holding torches, and no matter who's lighting torches, and, who's, and no matter who's doing what at the Yom Atzmut ceremonies in Israel. It, it was a shame that that became a, pu- a public issue, wasn't it? Well, I think it's mishandling by Israeli officials. I don't think there's anything to do with Jewish leadership. I think it's uh, there's incompetence and... and uh, you know, whether intentional or not, I don't think it was intentional in most part, uh, but it certainly was bungled. So I don't. I think that's a separate issue. I do think the announcements and decisions of people not to stand in moment of silence on Yom Hazikaron or on Yom HaShoah is a disgrace, and that anybody who does it should be held to account, that even a minister could say in any context, there's no excuse for that. That this is a collect. This was a collective threat against the Jewish people, against all Jews, regardless of where, who where they came from and who they are. And to this provocative stance has no justification. I can't. I don't. Cannot see and have not heard anyone who can in any way justify the fact that 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 you did not stand in honor and and in memory of those who sacrificed their lives, either those who were killed in Yom Shoah or those on. On uh, Yom Karon, the 23,000 from every sector of the Jewish people, every community that were killed by terrorists and in fighting to defend the state of Israel. That, I think, is a disgrace where all of us have to have a voice. The lighting of the candles is, is frankly, just to me. Well, that's the case. You have tremendous influence when it comes to our rabbinic leaders around the world. I would hope you'd be able to uh, convey this message to them. Uh, because I don't know if they would take the same public stand you just took. I understand, but I think that responsible leadership would not say, you can do what you want as an individual, but you cannot call people not to do it. Right. I think that, that that's the distinction I'm making. Understood, understood. Um, I, I'm jealous uh, you'll be there for Israel 70. We'll do our best to uh, convey all of this to our listeners around the world, you've always said it. I, I've always felt it and said it, but you've had a way to really emphasize it in ways that now I am duplicating. Uh, and that is that we have a unique ability <laughs> as a Jewish people, especially in the last 2,000 years, 
uh, to mourn the, uh, the terrible tragedies, but sometimes we find it difficult to celebrate. I know you agree with me that everybody, as you just pointed out, uh, regarding the, um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the sirens and how you'd like everyone to participate in a proper fashion, I'm sure you encourage everybody to, in some way, whatever way they wish, acknowledge how incredible uh, the upcoming 70th anniversary of the State of Israel is. Come spend one day in Auschwitz, and they'll appreciate what it means to have an independent Jewish state that can defend Jews that brought Jews home from Russia, Ethiopia, Iran, Yemen, Syria, Ethiopia, and and anyone, and that the the pledge of never again is fulfilled by the very existence of the state of Israel and the capacity to be able to reach out and make sure that Jews are never alone and never neglected and not subject to the whims of the world. When you have an independent Jewish state. A miraculous Jewish state. Anybody who doesn't see the miracles of Israel is blind. Yeah, I look forward to more of these messages a week from today. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Uh, enjoy, quote-unquote, enjoy Eastern Europe, and we'll speak again next week. Have a good Shabbos. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Candlelighting 713 in the New York area on this era of Shabbos Parsha Shmini. It's Shmini outside of Israel. Friday morning, we'll bench Rosh Chodesh tomorrow, Sunday and Monday, a two-day Rosh Chodesh ER. This time each and every Friday morning, every era of Shabbos, with great pleasure, we present Rabbi Benjamin Uden, spiritual leader of Congregation Shomrei Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Yudin. Good morning, Nachum. Good Arab Shabbos, everybody. Tomorrow, we in outside of Israel have the privilege of reading Parshas Shmini in Eretz Yisrael. Last Shabbos, which was for us, Achron Shal Pesach, was for them. Parshas Shmini, they are in Eretz Yisrael reading. Parshio, Sazria, Mitzorah, and for the next several weeks they will be ahead of us, and when we're together again, I'll lean at make note of that. Parsha Shmini contains a total of 27 mitzvot, 16 positive mitzvot, and 11 restrictions. The Parsha can be rather conveniently divided in half. Chapters 9 and 10, the first two chapters of the Parsha, and until Shishi, we have the first half of the parsha, Vayi Bayom Hashmini, Tada, Tada, on that eighth day. What's the eighth day? The eighth day, not the eighth day of Nisan, the first of Nisan, Rosh Chodesh Nisan. The eighth day, Rashi tells us, of Miluim, the very end of Parshas Tzav or the seven days of Miluim, the seven days of readying and going through the procedure, learning the process of uh, the korbanos and the functioning of the sanctuary. And now this is the day, opening day, what an incredible, exciting day. This is the day that the Torah tells us in Pesach, uh, excuse me, in chapter Nine, Pasuk, uh, the very beginning of Shlishi, Hashem, a fire went forth from before Hashem, and it consumed 
on the Mizbeach, the Ola and the Chalabim, the Korban and the fats. Listen carefully. Vayar Kol Ha'om, the entire nation saw. The same way the entire nation saw that they crossed the Red Sea. The entire nation saw and experienced Maimad Har Sinai, the revelation at Sinai. The entire nation sees now the fire coming down from heaven. And Vayoronu, the people sang happy song, and they fell upon their faces in incredible reverence of realizing, wow, Hashem has literally the Shekhinah, Shachin, God has moved in to the quote, neighborhood. Unbelievable. The second half of the parsha are the detailed laws of Kashros, which animals, fish, birds, creeping things that the Jewish people may eat and may not eat. And we understand, as the Torah concludes the parsha, that the laws of Kashros literally elevate the Jewish people. Because the end of the parsha, the maftir, and Rashi tells you on the spot that all over it says, I am Hashem who took you out of Egypt. Here it says, literally, who elevated you from the land of Egypt. And therefore, Rashi tells us how important are these laws of Kashrus in the name of and I quote, Ilmole, if it were only Wow. In other words, God is saying that we might think that Kashras and its laws are a incidental. No. For this alone, God says it was worthy and worth it to me to take you out of Egypt. I'd like, however, to focus on the very beginning of the parsha, and to ask you, if you open the Chumash, please, literally to the very first verse, whereby on the eighth day, Moshe calls to Aaron and his sons, and to the Zikne Yisrael, and to the elders of Israel. Now, the obvious question is, what are these Zikneim, what are the elders doing there? Meaning that the next many psukim talk about the specific animals that will be brought as offerings in order to dedicate the sanctuary. What's the purpose of the Zikanim, the elders of Israel, being there? Why have a dais? It's a very nice, nice picture, and we know who's sitting there, but what's the significance thereof? So the Be'er Yosef, Rav Yosef Salant, Zechron Levracha, suggests, I believe, a beautiful interpretation. If you look at the korbanos, the offerings that Aaron is to bring and the Jewish people are to bring, namely the Kohanim bring on behalf of the Jewish people, we see something very remarkable. Aaron is to bring an eagle. He's to bring a calf. Why? Our rabbis explain because Aaron, as much as he tried to delay and stop the Jewish people 
from sinning with the golden calf, he was somewhat involved, and therefore he's to bring a korban for the Cheto Egel. And in Pasuk 3, El Bnei Yisrael to Daberli Mor, to the Jewish people, aside from bringing an Egel, they are to bring a Seir Izim Lechatos. They are to bring a he-goat as a sin offering. And what's the significance of this? Explain our rabbis. This is to atone for the sin of Mechiras Yosef, of the selling of Yosef. The brothers take a seir, a goat, they kill it, and they dip the coat of Yosef in the blood of the goat, which is most similar to human blood. They bring it to their father, Abba recognized it, and the rest, as we know, is, quote, history. So the idea that the Torah is telling us is that before we can begin a new chapter in Jewish history, we have to first atone for the past. We have to, because we are as a unit, past, present, and future, all fused into one. As God's name is that of Havaya meaning, we, the Jewish people, are a reflection of His existence, and we live in all three dimensions, past, present, future. Hence, it was necessary to have a korban to atone for each of these two major sins. Asks the Be'er Yosef, what are the Zakanim doing there? And he gives a beautiful insightful answer. He says, if you think about it, these two major sins, that of the Egel, the golden calf, and that of the selling of Yosef, what was at the root of their sin? And he says, watch, before Moshe goes up to Har Sinai, at the end of Mishpatim, he says to the Jewish people, Hinei Aron v'chur imochem, I'm leaving you two leaders in charge, my brother, Aaron, my nephew, Chur. Any issues come up, go to them. Well, an issue didn't come up, a crisis came up. They thought Moshe had died. Okay, a legitimate now concern. Now what do you do? So instead of listening to Moshe, that they should go to the Zakanim, to the elders, to the designated leaders, and ask them, Aaron, Chur, what should we do? They go to Achur, and they say, make for us a god. And Chur says, what are you, crazy? So they kill Chur. Instead of listening to him, they reject the authority. And even Aaron, with the Gemara, the beginning of Sanhedrin, um, makes all kinds of cheshbonos, right, wrong, etc. There's no question about it. They're not listening to him. Aaron has to assess the situation and tries to delay. Their sin was they rejected authority. Go back to the earliest sin of selling Yosef. Says the bear Yosef, wait a minute. At that time, they really thought the brothers that Yosef was guilty. Guilty of being a rodave, pursuing them. All different kinds of sins that you can conjure up. But what should they have done? They could have, should have gone to the Besden of Shemva Aver. One. They could have, should have gone to Yaakov and even to Yitzchok, who was still alive at the time. So the, what was there? 
fundamental sin that they too, the brothers, rejected the authority that was available to them. So by having the Zechkenim, it's not just, as we might have thought, a deus and respectable people. No! It's having the elders there, and Moshe was saying to the people, look, look, that you are to realize that in order to go further, you must look back. The Pasuk in Ha'azinu, right? The Torah says, "Binu shnos Ask your father, zekeinecha. Ask your elders, v'yomrulach, and they will tell you. And the Ber Yosef quotes the Medrash, whereby Rabbi Kiva says on this pasuk here in Vayikra Rabba, "Nimshlu Yisrael la'of." The Jewish people are compared to a Bird, how so? Ma'of, just as the bird, enoporeach cannot fly without kenafayim, without its wings. So too, the Jewish people cannot exist without their elders. Moving on, what do we find? The Sanhedrin, the elders of the Jewish people, were located and presided in the Beis HaMikdosh complex. Why? So that the environment, the influence of the Beis HaMikdosh, literally of God himself, whose presence was found there in a much in more intense way, should positively influence the Zakanim, that they would be able to oversee the Kedusha of Klai Yisrael, not just the Halacha, so, for example, we find the tragedy and the tragic death of Nodav and Aviu, and the Torah tells us it was Esh Zara, a strange fire. The rabbis suggest different possibilities. Perhaps they were intoxicated. They meant well. They wanted to go beyond, but they were guilty of Horu Halacha Lifnei Rabban. They came to halachic conclusions without checking with the rabbinic authority, Moshe, Aaron. And so, for example, meaning well, youth are not coming to synagogue. Well, let's take out a guitar, and maybe that will, quote, turn them on. Those who suggested that might have meant well, but unfortunately did not go with halachic authority and that's why, unfortunately, it turned out to be an Esh Zorah. And now, very simply, what we find over here is the importance of Zakanim. And I'm going to add that Rav Salavich, in his eulogy for Rav Chaim Heller, which is in the book entitled Besod Hayochid, in that Sefer is his eulogy, and he has a section called Pleitas Sofrehem, that in our Shemona Esrei, every day we say, Allah Tzadikim, literally we say that Hashem is the one who maintains and supports the righteous ones, the Hasidim, the devout, Ziknei Amcha, Base Israel, the elders, and then Pleitas Sofrehem, the remnant of 
their scholars. Mazah, and why is it there? So he says, take note that we admire so much and have reverence for the previous generation. But when we're privileged to have, as in every generation, some of those who have survived from the previous generation, and they are the last of that previous generation, it makes such an impression. And he started by quoting, interestingly, the rabbis tell us that Serach Bas Osher, Yaakov Avinu's granddaughter, was alive at the time of Yitzias Mitzrayim. Of course they saw wonders when they left Egypt, but can you imagine seeing this woman who literally sat on Yaakov Avinu's lap? And I really believe that we today, when we still have, thank God, in our communities, some individuals, men, women, who went through the H-E-L-L and tortures of the Shoah, who have numbers on their arm to show where they were at that time and they survived, they give us such chiyos. They give us such a sense of appreciation for life. Look what, what they underwent in order to rebuild their life, and this gives each and every one of us that incredible capacity to gain from them and to realize how important life is. Ashrenu matov chelkenu. And therefore, as the first pasuk of this parsha begins, Ulizikna Yisrael, may we understand appreciate the Zikna Yisrael that we still have in our lifetime, give them not only the kavod that is coming to them, but realize how they did do, and their very presence uplifts our life, the sanctity of life, and how proud we are to be a Jew. Shabbat Shalom. To all.
J.M. and the A.M. Birchas HaChodesh as we get set for uh, Rosh Chodesh E.R., which begins tomorrow night. Uh, we'll bench Rosh Chodesh tomorrow, Rosh Chodesh E.R. Sunday and Monday. Uh, we uh, commemorate Israel Memorial Day on Yom HaZikaron this coming Wednesday. On Thursday, it'll be Israel 70. We request that everybody join us for the big celebration. Uh, it will be a, um, a comprehensive, long, and wonderful celebration of uh, 70 years of the State of Israel this coming Thursday morning, beginning at 6 a.m., for Yomat's Mut number 70. Uh, very much looking forward to it. I hope everybody has an opportunity to tune in and enjoy it along with us. Make sure to be tuned in. Make sure to uh, to be there. Um, Arnie asked about the Mishaberach from yesterday. The Mishaberach yesterday for the IDF soldiers. That was the uh, prayer for the welfare of the IDF soldiers as done by the Hezder Yeshiva Boys Choir. A World Mizrahi Movement Jerusalem Jubilee album. Uh, that we brought back from Israel with us last year after Jerusalem 50. Pretty good piece. Pretty good. Uh, pretty amazing album, frankly. 
So that's what that is. And um, I want to thank those who have been commenting on the app all week. A lot of great comments about our uh, Yom HaShoah presentation yesterday. Holocaust Remembrance Day, much appreciated. Uh, 59 degrees, partly cloudy. High 78 tomorrow, the high 73. Finally, Baruch Hashem. No complaints regarding the uh, <laughs> regarding the temperature. No complaints at all. And I um, hope everyone has a wonderful Shabbos. Great weekend. And uh, we are back here Monday morning. Uh, Matis with JM Sunday on Sunday morning, starting at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Monday. I'll be here starting at uh, 6 a.m. And Monday, we introduce a brand new program, a Novak Now. Jake Novak, who's one of the most knowledgeable people out there, joins the Nahum Siegel Network this coming Monday, right after after further review with uh, Yoni Pollock. 11 a.m., Jake Novak with a tremendous take on uh, politics, the economy, the world in general. We're calling it Novak Now, and you'll have a chance to hear him Monday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern Time here on the Nahum Siegel Network. So a great new edition. More information about that coming up on Monday. Well, sorry about that. When we speak with him live on the air here at JM in the AM. Time to say good Shabbos with Journeys at JM in the AM.
spend time with your family. You'll study and you'll pray. Why not wait till after Shabbos? All、oh, those nails won't run away. So throw away your hammer. There's nothing left to do. Go on home and find the gift that's waiting there for you. Oh, it's time to say good Shabbos, 'cause all your work is done. Gonna spend the day together with the Holy One. Say a special blessing on a cup that's filled with wine. Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. And I thank everybody for tuning in and being part of this amazing Friday Erev Shabbos experience. Uh, Monday, we're back starting at 6 a.m. Don't forget Yom Hazikaron Wednesday, Yom Atzmaut Thursday, Matis with JM Sunday this coming Sunday beginning at 7 a.m. Tomorrow night, Avrami with Saturday Night Siegel. Join him for great Saturday night Matzei Shabbos programming. He features Rabbi Eliezer Zwickler with the Torah portion. And don't forget, Monday's a big day for us at the Nachum Siegel Network because we add Jake Novak to our schedule. Details. Monday morning of a fabulous Shabbos, wonderful weekend. Till Monday, Nachum Siegel reminding you: remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.